welcome to Madison Voices. Theater is a reflection of society and the times in which we live. We give voice to the artist's perspective on art, theater, family, and life. We want to take this time to celebrate the talent, passion, and stories of those who are part of the Madison Theater family. Thank you. I'm your host, Angelo Fraboni, Artistic Director of the Madison Theater at Malloy College. This week, we are looking internally at the Madison Theater. With the current Black Lives Matter movement and the egregious lack of equal opportunities for Black artists that have been so present in the recent media, I started to look at our organization, our hiring, booking of artists. All these practices have been in place at the theater. This episode is not about defending what I've done in the past, but to examine how we've fallen down or where we may do a better job. I've invited a friend, a fellow actor, onto today's podcast. He's an award-winning director and playwright who creates innovative new works for the theater. The Madison Theater was lucky enough to produce one of his works in our inaugural season back in 2011-2012 called From My Hometown. Oh, and he's black. So please welcome Lee Summers. Hey, Lee, how are you? Oh, I'm black. I'm good. <laughs> I just, you know, had to throw that in there, you know. No worries. I, I just wanted, let's talk a little bit about your career first and your, in your life's work. I mean, you're an actor, you're a Broadway performer. You've done uh, quite a bit of uh, uh, performing before you switched over. So talk a little bit about you as a performer and where your career was and yeah, well, um, I'm originally from Nashville, Tennessee. First of all, it's, a, it's really great to be here with you today, Angelo. Always happy to chat with you, uh, particularly with all the years we've known one another. But to uh, answer your question, um, I started off in my hometown, Nashville, at a theme park na- uh, called Opryland, USA. And uh, I was a senior in college at Tennessee State University, HBCU. And uh, I got a job opportunity to tour. So I, I left my senior year. and. Uh, did a tour of Porgy and Bess, and that led me to move to New York right on time to meet Michael Peters my first night in New York City in 1980. And uh, he told me he was working on something. And to fast forward, it was the original Dreamgirls, which I became a part of. And, um, and I did that show for three years, eight shows a week. And while I was there, I, was, I saw a lot of actors come and go. I saw uh, co-members from the original company, from uh, from Shirley Ralph to Ben Harney to Fondi to Loretta, just different people, iconic people to this day. But I saw them as they departed the show. And I was always surprised to see how those standing ovations kept happening, uh, regardless of who was in, um, in the roles. And um, that's when I realized that the show itself was built on something that was a term I use, which is not original, but I actor proof. And um, so I started uh, sort of hanging out around the theater, down in the orchestra pit, just everywhere I could and, and trying to figure out what was this machine built on that allowed it to stand like it does, like it has done from from the stage all the way through, you know, feature film now, as, as, as time would tell. And that's when I started to really become curious and wanted to wanted to study structure and dramaturgical structure and exactly why Dreamgirls worked like it did. And that led to my writing shows and then eventually going back to school, finishing my undergrad and getting a master's from NYU Tisch and the musical theater writing program. And uh, all along while doing that, uh, just putting out works and some of them, you know, 
being off Broadway is the one that you uh, brought to Madison Theater and um, numerous regional performances, or rather re- regional licensings, if you if you will, and just having a, a body of work that I I, I put out where, wherever and whenever I can, and you know, winning some competitions and and so forth. But you and I were talking about what uh, being a person of color. How has that impacted on my journey? Not to jump ahead of what topic we have, but it's hard for me to speak about my career, particularly in this climate, without uh, the backdrop of of what my obstacles might, of what have what they have been, and how I felt as an artist of color, and how it is uh, common knowledge amongst artists of color that there um, is a degree of racism. And opportunities are not as um, available to people of color. And you see it when you measure your growth based on other artists who are not of color. And you see it in terms of opportunities and things that seemingly come easier for other groups as opposed to people in, in your community. And you commiserate and you affirm and you know that it's not you. It's not in your head. You know, it's a real thing. And that's one reason why I'm really happy that we're all having these kinds of conversations today. Right. Yeah. So for for our listeners, uh, Lee and I had a conversation because I actually called him just to talk to him. We had been, we're coming up on our 10th anniversary season and we were talking about bringing from my hometown back. And uh, because of, you know, I kind of went with him went to him with my tail between my legs saying, you know, I know, you know, we've been friends for a while, but I, you know, I still have, you know, not given you opportunities that I should have and stuff like that. And we, this is how this conversation came about. So he's, you're right. Uh, we were also talking about in that conversation, because ironically, um, there was an article in the New York Times on Sunday, uh, Jelani uh, Alden, Alden, I think that's how you pronounce his name. He played uh, Christoph in Frozen. And one of his quotes is, uh, many white artists are given the chances to try and fail over and over again before becoming a critical success. And we were talking about the pressures of black artists in our conversation of, of how they don't have the same opportunity of failure or opportunity to fail. Can you talk a little bit about the pressures of that? Well, yeah, it's, um, again, within our community, we know that once a person of color goes up at bat to it, particularly on the Broadway scene, we know that that's going to, uh, affect all of our chances. And we also know that generally it's just, I mean, this is just something that's ingrained in me. I mentioned Opryland as my starting, uh, I was the only African-American in that uh, show, and there was only room for one. And when I left, Jerry Dixon replaced me, and your listeners, I'm sure they know Jerry, but um, so that was, it was always one. And I found that that to be the framework and sort of the template of my career. Uh, Often there was this one opportunity. When you and I were talking the other day, and I was telling you about all the different works I have. And then I mentioned the work that I had directed. And and I said, well, this one's one that I directed. This is not one that I wrote. And you said, well, Lee, I'm, I'm, I'm rethinking. It's not just, there's there's room for more. And I, my takeaway from that comment was, 
Yeah, as we have these this new world, this new conversation we're having about more inclusiveness, people of color also have to make adjustments because we're so used to that one opportunity, that limited opportunity. So to that gentleman's article in the New York Times, uh, yes, there there are there's never been uh, a plentiful amount of work uh, for people of color, and yes, uh, if we do, uh, we are concerned with being perfect, and uh, so that we have other opportunities to follow, and that we are to sound cliche, but it's unfortunately a term that we use credits to our race. Because to, to get on a deeper psychological level, and I know this isn't the first time that anyone's ever said this, but there is an ongoing um, anxiety that exists for a person of color the moment they step out of their door to make sure that they are um, perfect because of all the perceptions. There's a constant systematic racism of, of negative stereotypes and representation, and so therefore we have to fight against that. and. And it's it's as simple as just walking down the street and somebody seeing you and knowing that they're going to have an assumption. So you have to make that effort to make sure that you uh, subvert that if you if you if you have the time and energy. But that being a person of color, you just have to do that. You just it's 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 on auto, autopilot. And so that transfers into our careers. It is like if if we're not we don't have the room and space to your point that you said earlier, we don't have, we're not afforded the time to learn our craft, uh, particularly when it's dollars involved, or particularly in a, in a situation where the demographic is white people. Broadway, let's face it, is an elitist uh, 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 function and, and, it, and it caters to people who generally can either afford Broadway or who are in the majority numbers that come to Broadway. And so you're, you're dealing with the, the, the financial elements of it. You're dealing with the artistic and cultural elements of it. Are you being allowed to come in? And you're dealing with that point of what, what you do bring to the table. It's got to be uh, great. And if you have if you fail, if it gets bad reviews, if it's not good, if it loses money, then you're out. You're not you're not you're not going to bounce right back and be up there next season. There will be some other token, some other one black guy at Opryland <laughs> to use the analogy, but it won't be you. And so that's the pressure, and that's that's hard, and it also makes it super super competitive amongst people of color, uh, even if it's unintentional. So uh, another great uh, outcome of these conversations we're having that we can bring some of this these uh, topics out into the light. And so, yeah, kudos to the gentleman in the uh, New York Times who who uh, brought that point into the conversation. Yeah, I mean, and we talked about this. Uh, you know, I'm lazy. And, you know, I produce 400 events, you know, internal, external, a year at the theater. And we talked about how I've been lazy. I, I can do three or four original works or f f three or four revivals a year. And I tend to go to the same people. I have my pool of people that I go to because it's just easy. I say, oh, I can hire the, this director, this choreographer, this these designers, all for these projects. And well, my job is done for the year. I just have to produce them and, and you know have these meetings. But you know why haven't I been looking? You're a friend of mine, Lee. You're, you're a brilliant director. I've seen your work. And why haven't I gone to you to direct a hairspray or you know a sweet charity or something that we're looking to do 
you know, why haven't I expanded my pool? And that's me being lazy rather than seeing you otherwise, you know, if I'm doing a, a work like from my hometown, which is, you know, you know, have, has black actors in it and it's, it's centric around that music scene and everything. Oh, it's an obvious choice for Lee Summers to be that director. But, you know, if I'm doing a chorus line or if I'm doing, you know, a West Side Story, why isn't Lee Summers an obvious choice? You know, why isn't he in that conversation? <laughs> So can you speak a little bit about that? I mean, there's opportunities that you should be given that you're not given because it's not central around your culture. Do you find that? Well, yeah. And the other thing, too, is um, I take some response in terms of you viewing me as a director. I've worn many hats in the industry. And it wasn't until I started like winning awards and getting opportunities in, as a director that I joined SDC. And so now, you, while you've known me as a director, I wasn't primarily focusing on directing. I've always been focusing more on performing and writing and creating new musicals. Um, so, so that I don't, I, I hold you, I hold no fault to you for not thinking of me as a director uh, at, you know, in your, in your Rolodex to, to be old school, as opposed to your iPhone. Uh, right. but, um, but there is something to explore in how we are most comfortable with our circles and with those people that look like us and those people who, who we have relationships with and those people who are, that represent what, even if it's somewhere in the back of our brain, that represents what the machine that, that say in your case, you're operating a, a theater that, I don't know, you have a, a board, we talked a little bit about that, and you have, you have uh, this academic machinery behind you, and you have whatever your demographics of your student body is, and so you, perhaps even subliminally, you deal with that kind of of a gathering of, of creatives in order to reflect the culture of the institution. And so all of that plays into the overall systemic racism that everybody's talking about today. And so not to point any fingers to you, but just, just expounding on what you just brought to the conversation. So it, that happens. It, it happens. It's always happened. But where does that leave the artist of color? It leaves them out. And it leaves them knocking on a lot of doors and having fewer opportunities. And that's what uh, hopefully, hopefully that we've began to address throughout all of the uh, entertainment industry. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that uh, we've been short-sighted. And Madison, you know, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, I don't want to defend what we've done, what we, you know, who we've brought in, uh, you know, because as a, a person in the theater, you know, theater people, especially white theater, theater artists and stuff, always think that we're the most liberal and we're, we're the most progressive and stuff like that. So when you take a hard look at your hiring practices or the or your your natural tendencies, you realize, you know, where you failed and how you've been short sighted or been lazy. I, I, I think I've just been lazy. And, uh, you know, it's it's humbling in a way to look at, you know, what I consider a liberal person and find out that, wait, I've been, you know, a part of this, I've been a part of uh, continuing this, this um, lack of diversity in, in directing and choreo choreographers and, and, and designers and stuff like that, because I just, 
you know, haven't gone there, you know? Well, you, you were, I mean, that, that's what I think the whole conversation is about here in 2020. And I'm so, and I know I'm not the first person to see, to say this, but I'm so thankful, even though it's been horrific having a global pandemic, it, it's horrific seeing what happened to George Floyd. Uh, and at the same time, it made way without distractions of, of, of sports, entertainment, and everything for the world to pause and really take a look at this. And so, and not to mention Amy Cooper, who is a, a liberal person in her, um, how she would uh, characterize herself. And it just exposes that even in liberalism, even in theater and being artists and so forth, that there is a, when it's systemic, it's bigger than any one person's choices. And where I commend you and my other friends who are having these real conversations is that you don't come, you, you've done your own soul searching and you, you haven't come to the table saying, it's not me. You're coming to the table going, let's, let's talk about it. I'm looking at myself and seeing how I and my, and my uh, company or my institution, or what what I what about my power is? How can I improve on that? How can I have an awakening about what I'm doing if I can afford to give opportunities to artists? That's healthy. That's good. That's what I think needs to happen these days. It is the people that come to the table saying that they're not a part of it, whereas everybody in America is a part of it. Um, it's that's that's where I. Not that I don't have patience for it. But I just get a little exhausted. I wrote a, a song while I was in uh, at, at NYU called uh, "I'm Not Teaching This Semester," and it was uh, <laughs> it's, it's comedic and it's funny. But basically, it deals with uh, putting the onus on people who are not of color to do the research, to read a few books, and to really find out what's going on with America, its history, the history of the African-American, uh, how we got here, uh, the years of the 401 years of madness from from slavery to Jim Crow, you know, and everything. So uh, that's we don't need to teach uh, black people. We know it. And and we've been affected by it. But it's uh, people who are not of color when they uh, have these moments and they're doing the soul searching, doing the research, having the conversations. That is that's what those are the people that we know are standing with us and standing with the world because we are all not to sound corny, but we are all one. We are. Yeah, I agree mm -hmm. uh, wholeheartedly. I believe that, uh, you know, not to be corny since you started with the corny, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. You know what I mean? No, that's the only thing that there's just too little love. Yeah. Your, your millennial audience members will have to Google that one. Probably. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's it's true. I mean, I just it it seems so um, ingenuous, you know, to you know to say you're a loving person yet, you know, exclude a whole race or a whole sector of the population from that from that love or from that acceptance. And I think we all have to look at it and say we have we have an opportunity now. And I don't want this opportunity to fall fall aside because we've had these opportunities in the past and it's been ignored. You know, we we you know you see some uh, protests and we have a lot of you know people making a lot of noise and then in a few months we're back to where we are. And I really hope that this time 
and I, I feel confident. I'm, I, I feel like this is an opportunity that we can actually make some changes and, and make some strides forward, and hopefully we can have a better um, a better society and a better world for it. You know, um, yeah. that's my my hopes. You well, know? I, and I agree with you, and I also hope that um, based on the conversations that the world is having now, I hope that they, that the powers that be will find even more relevance in the. I don't want to say mundane, but there are there are stories. People of color have stories that don't always have to be as extreme as as sometimes that that's what's exploited. It's like if it's going to be black, it's got to be really something extreme. There could there could be ordinary stories. There could be there's there could be uh, lighter stories, stories of joy, story just pure entertainment, like from my hometown is. It's mm-hmm. it a message. Um, so I just hope that there are more opportunities for more stories, uh, that, that, uh, subscription houses start to understand that, uh, black churches are not just a last minute thing to get tickets when you have a show of people of color. It's just something that should be a part of your machinery, your marketing, your advertising should expand a really wide net. And, and these theaters should not just uh, send out their information and expect the, for lack of a better term, or just bluntly, expect only for uh, market only to the white people, and then market secondarily or on the third level to people of color, and and therefore they program their seasons for white people, and that's just a majority that that happens. Same thing with Broadway producers. I'm hoping and prepare and prepping during this quarantine that some of the conversations that I've had with some Broadway producers in the past that see purely dollars and cents in a, in a, in a white, great white way, that maybe their minds will open up. And it'll probably be on some level exploitative on the, on the, on the grounds that now black is in, if you will, or, or awareness is in. There'll be some of that going on. But hopefully, to your point, that it won't just be temporary. It won't be a flash in the pan. It'll be like the new American theater is truly diverse and truly reflects the the, the diversity of our country. Hopefully, that will happen. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you sort of touched on on you know marketing to the black community and and stuff stuff like that because I always said you know I was always proud of every Black History Month. You know, I had my programming and you know to celebrate that. And, and I told you, I said, I started thinking, well, well, why aren't I doing this other parts of the year? You know, why do I have to wait till February, you know, which is notoriously a horrible time for theater anyway, you know, for audiences to come out in the dead of winter? You know, why do I have to wait for, you know, a marketing ploy, you know, to celebrate the black artist or, or to celebrate um, a, a black story, you know, and I don't think I should shy away from doing that in the future. You know, I'll continue to do that, but I just need to start bringing in, and I told you, I want to start bringing it in throughout the season rather than just one time a year. And, uh, you know, I'm not talking about jazz artists and stuff like that. I'm talking about plays and, and, and development projects because I do development projects at the theater. But speaking of from my hometown, uh, which is a great story and, and a fun story, it's a three-person play. Um, you've had some success with it. Um, you have some new projects coming up that you've, you've had in development, and one that we've discussed, which is the Ella Fitzgerald one. Can you talk a little bit about that project? Oh, yeah. So, uh, the Ella show. Um, it, a while back, uh, Arena Stage uh, commissioned 
my friend Maurice Hines to uh, was Arena Stage. Arena Stage is in Washington D.C. It's a very reputable uh, regional theater. Um, they've been there a long time. I'm trying to think of probably some of their more uh, high-profile pieces, but um, it's just very reputable. I would encourage your um, listeners to Google it. But um, Maurice got this opportunity because he had done a production of Guys and Dolls there. Maurice is a friend of mine for many, many years and uh, and a collaborator. And so he came to me and he said, because he and his brother Gregory, for those of who may not who know who Maurice Hines is, Gregory Hines, Will and Grace, one of the greatest tap dancers of all time. His, he and his brother were childhood stars. And so this is Maurice's brother who is still with us. And uh, so he, he approached me to write the book for an Ella Fitzgerald story based on the fact that they had opened for Ella in Las Vegas as kids. So he got a backstage view of the great Ella Fitzgerald that he wanted to bring to the stage. And so, uh, so I wrote the book for it. And to fast forward, uh, we ended up doing it at the Crossroads Theater as a world premiere. Uh, we've done it at about four other regional theaters. And um, it was booked also for the Houston Ensemble Theater for 2021. We're not sure if that's going to happen or not. I mean, the contracts have gone out, but they've, they're they like completely at a, at a halt. So we shall see if that happens as well. But um, it's, as I was saying, a backstage view of Ella Fitzgerald that many people haven't seen who she is as a person. Um, there's not been a definitive Ella musical produced yet. And we're hoping in our development that we've had the opportunity to have so many, uh, at least four or five productions of it, that um, we get some attention to, to some uh, the attention of some Broadway producers, maybe, and to uh, give the show a life in New York eventually. So it would be really great to come to uh, the Madison Theater, uh, work on the show again, uh, maybe bring in some people from New York to come and see it and uh, see what, where it goes. Yeah, it's a brilliant uh, project. I love it. And we're right now we're penciled in for September of 2021. Uh, like you said, everything is sort of on hold because of mm -hmm. what's going on in the world. Uh, but I'm very excited about that project um, and see what we can do with that. You, awesome. know, you, you talked about, um, I just have to talk a little bit about Gregory Hines, one of the most selfless performers I've ever had the pleasure of I worked with him a little bit and um but I I saw him in many of his shows and in Jelly's Last Jam I don't know if you ever saw him in that yeah, did, yeah. but he uh, he was one of those performers where he every time he wasn't he wasn't the focus he was focusing on what needed to be the audience need. it was such a compl complex story in Jelly's Last Jam but his focus and his the way he gave to these other fellow actors on stage I just remember walking out of theater just going, this man is just a consummate professional. Besides being a great guy, yeah. you know, he was just a great guy. But his focus and his the his focus and his his love for the work that he was in was amazing. Anyway, I just had to say that because yeah. I just well, I mean and it needs to be said, both of them, the Heinz brothers are two beautiful human beings. Uh, they were raised in show business uh, and and from childhood they've been doing this. They were had been doing this, and uh, they were raised. Uh, speaking of racism, they were raised as two little black boys that they had to always be perfect. They had to, but they were raised to get standing ovations. Uh, their their parents taught them early on: if the if the audience isn't standing, you haven't done your job. 
And so that, can you imagine being a kid learning that uh, on the stage? And so if you see Maurice to this day in his uh, mid seventies, you're going to be blown away by his performance skills. And both of them had it and it was just unique and something to behold. And yeah, when I saw Jelly's last jam, it, I've always taken great pride in thinking that Dreamgirls was the best black show, if you, if you will, that had ever happened musical wise. And when I saw Jelly's last jam, I was like, "Uh oh, there's competition. <laughs> this one's really, really good. That uh, was really good. Gregory was amazing at it. But I have to say, one of my all-time favorite musicals of all time is Dreamgirls. I'll never forget seeing Dreamgirls sitting. I was sitting in the first row balcony um, when it first came out on Broadway. And when that overture started or that opening started, uh, the thrill of theater, I mean, just the energy, the pulsating energy of Dreamgirls is just yeah. amazing. And we actually had the pleasure of working on it together in the oh, 25th anniversary. The 2001, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a real crazy moment right after 9-11. Yeah. Remember that? And yeah. we were doing this reading, uh, stage reading for the Actors Fund. And it was, I remember it just being such a, 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 a such a, a social thing during the uh, rehearsals, just get coming out from 9-11. And then the night of the performance, um, a fireman gave the curtain speech, you remember? And, the, and it was completely sold out. And when he gave that curtain speech, that place just blew up with with passion that we were, we were, you could feel it was like, we will survive. We will survive this attack. And here we are to celebrate one of our favorite musicals. And it seemed like from backstage, the bar went all the way up from reading for the Actors Fund to, oh, we're about to make history. And um, so those people who don't know about that one, they can buy the CD on Amazon. That's right. 2001 anniversary that you and I are featured on. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, that was a huge cast. I mean, I, there were multiple. Pl- I mean, I, I just remember being oh. blown away by the people that were on that oh. show. Billy Porter, Norm Lewis, Alger McDonald, Heather Headley, um, Adrian Smart- Smartuni, right? Oh, you Smartuni, said her. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, it was a uh, all star. It was great. It was it was good. Um, uh, what's her name? She ended up getting Angela Ferboni and Lee Summers. I mean, Angela come on, Lee Summers. Uh, <laughs> she won the Tony for Memphis. Uh, she was in the chorus, way in the background. But she years later, she really emerged. Uh, I cannot think of her name. Um, if she hears this, she'll kill me. <laughs> she won the Tony for Memphis, like a few years later. Yeah, um, that was a good show too. I loved Memphis. I enjoyed yeah. that. Yeah, Memphis is great, good show. Um, uh, yeah, what is her name? I can't think of her name right now. It, it almost came to me just now. I can Google it while we're talking. Uh, yeah, so we could we could edit it in. Make yeah. Make it, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I wanted, yeah. Well, as as we talk as as you're googling that, um, you know, you have other shows. You have you know the the Funkin' Teen Rapture. You have. Uh, is it Pan- Panagira? Pangea, yeah. Pangea, you have Yo Alice. I want to talk about those different works and stuff like that as well. And then you're directing in a play that you said is not yours, um, but it's based off of Harriet Tubman. Right. And, um, so where do you want to start with those new works? Well, I'll start with uh, the first one you mentioned was... Uh, was Funkentine. it? Funkentine. Yeah. The Funkentine Rapture, uh, while I was writing, uh, producing from my hometown back in the early 2000s, 
uh, it was it was very stressful wearing a lot of hats. And so I we had to get the song rights for all of those R and B classics. And my partner at the time, my producing partner, we were doing that, and I was saying to him that when we heard some funk music on the radio, I said, well, if this were a funk musical, I could just write those songs in my sleep because that's <laughs> what I was raised on. I went to the prom to funk music. I was, I, but coming of age was funk. And so I, we began writing that musical then as to just sort of make each other laugh because it's a comedy. It's very over the top and crazy, but it's basically a hero's journey, a young, a young uh, person of color who is an R&B aficionado, but he has to learn the, the funk genre in order to win his sweetheart and to defeat the disco villain. And, uh, <laughs> so, so that show was uh, selected for the NAMP Festival. Uh, it beat out the hundreds of musicals to be selected for that. And it was also developed at TheaterWorks out on, in Palo Alto. When you mentioned Memphis, uh, Memphis was developed in Palo Alto at the same theater company. And a few years prior to that, we had done Funkantine as a full, uh, full stage reading. That's a, a show that I, when I look back and I think about, well, why hasn't that one come to Broadway? And I think about, well, uh, not as an excuse, but when you start really holding things up to the light and opportunities and so forth. I mean, I had some people, a team of people who were really behind it, but we just never got a chance to get it there because the doors were not open like we like what we would have hoped for. Um, so that show, I, as I said to you on the on the uh, phone the other day, I was like, that's the show that I hopefully will be my first Tony Award. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a fun one. It's a lot of fun. And James Monroe Eigelhart, who won the Tony for um, Aladdin, he was in my original cast in uh, Palo Alto uh, years earlier, and he's still committed to the project. Uh, I hope you wouldn't mind me quoting him when <clears throat> the last time we did a concert of it, he said, and he was working on Broadway in Aladdin at the time. And he said, Lee Summers, I was telling my wife, the only show that I consider going broke for, for a minute or two, would be the Funkantine Rapture. So he's <laughs> still on board with it. And Lily is white. She's on board with it. And oh, I love all this. Yeah. So that one is something that um, I look forward to, you know, talking more with you about it. And hopefully um, we'll get a chance to do that one in New York eventually as well. Yeah, for my list, my listeners, uh, you know, the Madison Theater, we booked so far in advance that when you told me about this, I told you, I, oh, I have to have this. I said, but can you wait till 2022? You know, and it's like sometimes you get these hot properties and you don't have anywhere to slot them in, you know, when you really want them. But uh, we'll see. I, I, I love it. I, I love the idea. And let's talk about, you know, because we also talked about 2022 again because the summer of 2022, because 21's already booked, but we talked about your Yo Alice. Right, right. And Another collaboration with Maurice Hines. Um, right. Yeah, that one um, had some success early on. We, we had a, an option for two years at Radio City Entertainment, and, um, and we had a movie deal, and um, <laughs> that the producer defaulted on that. Um, and then there was just a period where that that show sort of took a back seat. And the reason why it's sort of like burning in my spirit here in 2020 is my co-collaborator, our collaborator, our third collaborator, Timothy Graffenreid, who some of your listeners may know as the dance arranger for the original Broadway show, The Wiz. Uh, Timothy passed away August, uh, March 1st of 2020. And... Uh, 
the music for the show, which he had uh, transcribed uh, for years, he it had been like kind of lost. It's like the actual documents where the music was, because uh, as I said, we sort of took a back seat. And so his partner, after he passed away, he found the music in his uh, apartment and said, Lee, here's the music. And so I've been during the entire quarantine, I've just that just took, took a front seat. Uh, besides the other things I was working on, I was like, let me revisit the show, revisit this music, and let's see if Yo Alice can have the life that it was meant to have back when executives from Radio City and Madison Square Garden recognized what a property it was and signed it for a two-year option. So hopefully we'll be able to do that one again at some point soon. Yeah, well, I want to be a part of that because it sounds great. And just tell what your Alice is a re- retelling of Alice in Wonderland, yeah, right? It's, it's some it's a hip-hop Alice in Wonderland set, set in 1999. And basically what it is, what, uh, what I'm working on now is it's a young lady of color, our Alice, and uh, she is... Uh, middle class and her parents are lawyers and uh, they kind of want her to follow in the same trajectory. Uh, she's not sure if that's what she wants to do. Or she wants to be an artist. She thinks she does. And so she fig- she with her own agency, she uh, behind their back um, signs up or applies to a, an art school when they're thinking she's at a private school. And it's not until her LSAT exam prepping to become a lawyer date shows up that they realize that she's not where she's supposed to be. So you have these two, these two subplots uh, and uh, or these two plots. And so Alice is actually in, she's, she gets kicked in the head during a dance rehearsal because she's not, she's a fish out of water at this urban school. And uh, she gets kicked in the head and then she's in Wonderland. And now that's where you see us reimagine all of these familiar characters that we've all heard about all of our lives, but now they're in this hip hop fashion, bigger than life with the, with the uh, metaphor of the record industry. Um, as the overarching met- metaphor, so the evil queen is the evil queen of R and B, and Alan doesn't have a, she doesn't have a voice. But by the time she uh, has to confront the queen, she does find voice. And then at by the end, when she comes back, we wonder, oh, what she is she going to be an artist? Or what happened to this lawyer thing? It's what have you? So hopefully, we we feed the uh, audience with uh, a, a modern, uh, contemporary issued young lady who understands the, the importance of advocacy in a, in, in a modern world. And so she makes a choice that hopefully to help serve her community more than herself. <laughs> That's, I mean, it's, it's, it just sounds fa- fantastic. It sounds great. And then talk to me about Panagia. Pangea. Pangea. thing that uh, I wrote with my uh, collaborator, Janet No, um, uh, while at, uh, Tish in the graduate musical theater writing program. Janet is a incredible uh, classical pianist, uh, a Yale graduate who decided that after working in finance that she would uh, come back to school and get another master's degree in musical theater writing. And we were paired up in the program. She happens to be of Korean uh, descent. And, and so the two of us came together and we created this exploration of race and representation. And it landed just through our conversations with our student advisors that we decided to uh, deal with Pangea, the once upon a time supercontinent. What if she split into those seven continents that we know today, that we personified her as a female energy and these seven continents that we know today, that they are siblings. 
and we see the characteristics of, say, Europe, who's not necessarily a, a very nice guy, or to the other continents, and we see um, Australia, and we see uh, Antarctica. You know, she's she's black because uh, skin, the skin of a polar bear underneath is black. People don't know that, and she's she's icy, she's cold, and you know. So we have all of these uh, characteristics of these siblings. Uh, and the question that we pose to the audience is, can a divided world ever be put back together again? And so it's comedic and uh, it's got some pop soul music in it. And uh, it's a cast of seven and they are multicultural uh, with the one white character is Europe. And then there's uh, there's North America who happens to be Native American indigenous. And he has the 11 o'clock hour song. Um, yeah. Anyway, more about that. You'll you'll hear it. But uh, so that's <laughs> that's Pangea. It's it's a fun piece, and it won it won an award in 2018, and it got produced at the Mar- at Marymount College. And we're hoping to get some more developmental productions of that one as well. That's great. And and your your one project that you haven't written, and I'm gonna I want to once we talk about this, but I'm, I'm gonna circle back to something. So. Oh. You have this Harry Tubman project which right. you're, that, that you've directed or you have I've directed before? I've definitely directed it before, and I was in the process of directing it. I uh, would have been leaving for Utah uh, on June 26th of this month. And this project's been around for a while. It hasn't. Oh, it's not like. I first came on board with it in 2014 for the Nymph Festival. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I mentioned to you that uh, I had directed another version of Harry Tubman about a year prior. And this production happened to be uh, created by a brother and sister team that happened to be white. And I took a little issue to that because I we because they were writing about one of our icons and uh, one of my peers and um, Ruben, I mentioned to you, Ruben Santiago Hudson at the repass of our friend Lawrence Hamilton, he and I started speaking about it and he advised me, he said, not only do you need to direct that if it's being offered to you, but it is your duty to direct it because these are our stories, these are our icons, and we need to be the gatekeepers of our stories. So I said yes, and uh, it was a magical uh, situation. Uh, Lilius came on board, lots of people from New York and Broadway, and it was successful. Years went by. Unfortunately, the brother of this brother and sister team, he passed away. He, he drowned in Hawaii, and, uh, which is very, very sad and devastating. So his sister took some time. And finally, in 2019, she contacted me and said, Lee, we need we are going to put it up again. And uh, it was practically like a spiritual calling, she said that she needed to have me be a part of it, which I was very flattered. And we worked out the details and we were about to give it a world premiere at the Grand Theater in Utah, but COVID-19 said otherwise. Yeah. And so the reason I, I'm glad we're talking about this, but it was Montego Glover. I'm so glad you Googled it because I was trying to Google, <laughs> but I'm answering your uh, question. So it was just, I wanted to make sure that I was staying on track. Yeah, Montego Glover, absolutely. Yeah. She was the chorus, and then a few years later, she wins a Tony. That's right. Um, no small players, no small, no small actors. Period. Yeah. Period. Uh, the reason I I, I wanted to talk about Harry Tubman and, and the successes you've had, you know, you would think 
that you would have had more success. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. I mean, and this sort of brings us back to opportunities because, uh-huh. I'm, you know, you look at, you know, shows that have been in festivals, that have won festivals, have won awards, uh, successful off-Broadway runs, you know, uh, you know, great projects that, you know, and when we talk about Ella, you have a great, uh, you have a star attached to it yeah. as well. Star attached to it, a star in the creative team, yeah. Yeah, mention the star. So mm-hmm. we, who's the star? Who's oh, the star? Rita Payne. Yeah, the great Rita Payne. Her her big hit single was uh, "Band of Gold," um, and uh, yeah. So and, and I always I always sing a few bars in case people don't know it. But go ahead, sing a few bars. Been gone. All that's left is a band of gold. <laughs> For those who are not sure, through the angles, yeah, absolutely. Um, but you know, you've had you know, I, I look at the success and the awards. Uh, some very big directors have won the same awards that you have, right? And they, yeah, but they've you know they've been catapulted into the next level, and yet yeah. you're you're just you're struggling to get successful pieces a new life. Yep. So, you know, which sort of brings us back to this equal opportunity or is there opportunity or why isn't there more opportunity, you know, and hopefully we can, we can um, fix that and help, help, help a bit. Um, Because I think it's, you know, it's in this business, it's out of sight, out of mind. Right. You know, things move so quickly that if, 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 when your opportunity is there and it's, you know, and you have, or when you have momentum, if the opportunity isn't there right away, you can fizzle out and then people well, yeah, forget. Yo, like Alice is a prime example. The, right. what, the opportunities that were surrounding that were just insane. Um, so, yeah, that has been, I, while I, and even talking about this, I don't feel like sad or that I've been mistreated or anything like that. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm actually excited. I'm excited for the future. I'm excited for uh, all the possibilities of getting the shows up. I think that what's going to happen is that once one definitely uh, goes in, I will probably it will be my catalog, and I'll just have a string of things to, to do for the for the next say ten years or longer. And so, uh, I, I'm keeping the faith, as they say. Right. Mm-hmm. Ten years or longer. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Can't yes. think ten years off. Yes, and one never knows. Exactly. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. So, where, where are we going to go from here? I mean, how do you see this happening, and where where do we go from here? Um, you and I, or the world? Well, you and I. Uh, I mean, I just got to be more conscious and be just be more. Um, I mean, it's not like you haven't pitched Ella to me before. Uh, and I kept saying, oh, I don't have room in Black History Month. But now I realized that was stupid of me. And it, well, not stupid. It was just short sighted of me. And, uh, you know, so you, you and I have been good. But where do you see the community going, the artistic community, the, the Broadway community, the theater community? Well, first of all, I, I would be remiss if I did not uh, give you a compliment that you were due, which is, as you just pointed out, and you put it like as a footnote or something small, but you have been a supporter. You you did produce from my hometown uh, as your first show when you were still making a mark in in your new job at the time. So that was a huge uh, step that you took. 
uh, anytime I've called you throughout these years, uh, I remember calling you when I was creating a budget for Funkentine for another university, and you spent hours with me telling me, and you sent you sent me budgets. You've been very supportive to me throughout the year, and so I know that you're doing this soul searching thing. But your character has always preceded any kind of, or it's, it's always been on the front row as far as how I view you, and uh, and, and you're talented and you're smart, so you you. I appreciate the soul searching you're doing, and I appreciate the changes that you plan to make. At the same time, I would say you, uh, I know I don't need to say this, but I would say it's it's tricky to say to anyone in this climate, don't beat yourself up too hard, because I think we all need to sort of beat ourselves up kind of hard just because of the systemic racism. But you've been you've been an ally, and uh, so I would I want you to, to own that. Well, thank you, but I, I want to be better. Okay. I mean? Okay. So. So and now what was the second part of that question? Where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? I, I just hope that like someone was saying to me recently that they felt people were just listing off microaggressions and, and things that had happened to them and stories and that that it wasn't like productive. But I think that when you've got 400 years of, of oppression and suppression, I think that that is important that we hear each other and that particularly it, it really does boil down to black people being heard by white people, not all white people, but some white people really need to understand like this whole thing with the Confederate uh, statues and so forth. Uh, the Colin Kaepernick uh, situation. All of these things are things that people were like, no, you're crazy. No, that's not real. No, why are you bothering with that? All of that. So when you say, where does it go from here? I, I hope that it goes from these conversations that it just begin, gets better and better and better. I know that Germany uh, with the Holocaust has taken ownership of what uh, the atrocities were. And I'm told, although I've been to Germany once, but I'm told that you can barely go a block without seeing some acknowledgement of those atrocities, some apologies to uh, a people uh, that were uh, that, that that happened to. And I think America needs to start to uh, figure out ways of of showing the understanding so that an actual healing can begin. But the first level of it is acknowledgement. And so when you say, where do we go from here? We continue to acknowledge, 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 acknowledge. And then hopefully we begin to heal. And it won't happen. Like a moment ago, I said in the next 10 years, it won't even happen probably in my lifetime, but it will continue to happen for newer generations. And hopefully it will get better and better and better. But we've got to deal with the truth. We can no longer sleep, uh, sleep, sweep the ugliness of this country under the rug. You said it earlier. Um, uh, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. However, this nation was born with it, as has been said by other people, and I'm just quoting, uh, it was born with a birth defect. All men are created equal except those. And, that, and as long as we have that, and as long as we're, we're pretending that that doesn't exist and it has not uh, colored uh, the entire last 400 years, as long as there's a, po- a, a portion of the population denying that, then we we are going to be stuck where we are. But as, but as long as we continue to acknowledge, we'll get better. And I think we'll get better. And hopefully it'll trickle on down to all of our 
endeavors, our artistic endeavors, our academic endeavors, our our lives by, by just beca- becoming a better country, hopefully a better world. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is sort of embarrassing that, and my wife and I were discussing this, uh, the Tulsa, you know, that whole Tulsa massacre that I only heard about that in the last three months. I mean, where is that in our history books? I mean, when you talk about where we don't have the knowledge and we haven't been taught you know, our history properly. You know, it's hard to understand what people are going through if you don't understand where they've been and what they've gone through, you know. And that, to me, I, you know, Michelle and I were just, like, shocked and, you know, just like, have you ever heard about this? You know, why weren't we taught this in school? I mean, what, you know, it just, it is amazing and how things have been swept under the rug and just pushed aside and just, you know, ignored for generations, generations. I mean, a hundred years, 99 years. Um, yeah, that's okay. something that makes me want to cry every time I think about it. Oh, mm-hmm. oh my God. I just, it's shocking to me. It yeah. really is. And we do deal with that in Pangea. Uh, that, because that piece is to educate world events. So we do, we do touch on that in Pangea. I'm going to ask you a dumb question. Had you heard about it before? Of course. <sighs> Absolutely. I'd heard about that. I mean, you've heard about, obviously, the Trail of Tears. I mean, there's like our greatest hits of atrocities, you know? Uh, yeah, so that was... And then uh, what they did to the uh, Japanese people, the Japanese in yeah. There's just been racism that has gone on uh, against all all minorities by the majority. And that has been, um, that's a part of the American fabric. And that's what we're trying to fix now. And so it's great that this, uh, that the, uh, that Black Wall Street, the Tulsa massacre, that that's now uh, information that is getting into the conversation and people are getting that history. It's wonderful because people need to know that. It's, it's just, and the same thing with George Floyd and this video. How many videos have we seen? How many are we still seeing that just ha- have occurred since George Floyd? So there's some real there's some real fixing that has to be done. And how many haven't we seen? You know, that's how, that, the thought of that just is just wipes me out. The, the number of videos that we didn't see prior to the invention of the iPhone, you know, not just the ones that the videos we haven't seen, but the ones that weren't recorded. It's endless, you know. So it's been a lot. It's really been a lot. <laughs> it, it sounds it sounds so. Uh, trite to say it's been a lot being a person of color it's been a lot being a person of color but to be a, good <laughs> a lot being a person being a white person it's been a lot you know yeah it's been, it's been a lot for be, being a white person and it's been uh, yeah yeah it has been it's then then we have to start put a, a little pin and the word privilege right there when when we compare those two uh, yeah. so which is a whole different conversation yeah uh, it's you it's, and i talked about that the other day a little bit yeah, it's easy for me to ignore what I don't want to hear or I don't want yeah. to believe. You yeah, know. Or, or yeah, or if it's not even in your consciousness, uh, the thought of what a person of color might be experiencing, if, it, how can you understand it if it's not even something that you even thought about? It's like when people say, uh, I don't see color. What a privilege to say, I don't see color. When a person of color cannot see anything but color because the world constantly reminds them that they are of color. So it's, it's, so it's really interesting how how our world is constructed with the systemic racism that that it uh, 
that is infused with. Yeah. I, yeah. A couple great, uh, my wife and I have been watching a lot of movies because uh, we're stuck here. And uh, if you haven't seen thir- the thir- or 13, about the 13th Amendment. Yeah. Ava, and, uh, did I watch that? And also the movie Just Mercy. I did, definitely saw that. Uh, it's, they're both brilliant movies and just give you an insight on um, what uh, people of color have been dealing with. Over Excellent. Time, you know? But anyway, I have one final question. We're at our <laughs> time limit here. Okay. Uh, you know, what event or person influenced you the most? You know, the person that rocked your world, that turned you around. Who's that one person? And uh, if you had a dream role or a dream show that you wanted to direct or perform in, what would that be? It's wow. a two-part question. Yeah, it's a two-part question. What person rocked my world? Um, when I first uh, started to want to perform, I used to get in these arguments with my mother about Sammy Davis Jr., because Sammy Davis Jr. had kissed President Nixon and he was not uh, considered, uh, he, he, he was someone considered by the, uh, by, by the black race as someone who had sort of turned his back on people. At the same time, he was so undeniable as, a, as an entertainer. And before I was political in my mind, before I knew all about that, I could just see him, what he could do. So as a performer, he was my first idol as a person that made me want to get on stage and perform. And uh, I still, years ago when I did my show at the Triad for a year and won a Beastro Award, uh, one of the numbers that I did was Mr. Bojangles, which I modeled after Sammy Davis Jr.'s Mr. Bojangles. Um, So he's someone that pulled me into wanting to get on the stage uh, as a performer. Uh, What was your second question? (laughs) <laughs> what's your dream role like a dream role or a dream show to direct or perform in or uh, the dream show to direct for me right now is having the team uh, accumulating the team of people who have worked in the broadway machinery uh because I, there are people who know the hills and valleys the obstacles more far more than i do like you and i when we're talking about having people smarter than us in the room. I would love to assemble a group of smart people who are experienced in Broadway shows. And my dream role to direct, or rather dream show to direct, would be the Funkantine Rapture on Broadway. That's my dream. Okay. That's yeah. a good That's a good dream. Yeah. And I think we should end it at that. I just want to thank everyone. And I want to thank Mr. Lee Summers for speaking with me today. We've covered a lot of ground. And I really look forward to doing and developing some of your work. Um, at the theater and until then we'll keep the seats warm for you i want to thank producers kathleen the machine marino eileen swagger sweeney and the vp of advancement edward the terrific thompson technical support and editing by calvin the great Bluvada flores graphic designs by francis bouncing bonnet and sarah prancing palazzolo 